Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, Get this woman for my wife. Sorry, get this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke to them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open before you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who was uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then... We will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. And if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell on the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out the gate of this city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses was captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 
you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But, they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help me to speak the truth openly this morning, that you would be at work by your Spirit to uh, remove the veil from the eyes of those who don't believe, that they might see the light of the gospel as we proclaim Christ the Lord. For you who said, let light shine out of darkness, can shine in our hearts, that we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the things that we're doing as we're preparing to adopt is reading a book about the Congo. Its history is, uh, you know, I don't know it. I know the Belgians were there once. That's about all I know. And so I'm reading this book called Dancing in the Glory of Monsters. It's one that I gave to Amy uh, for Christmas. What a great Christmas gift, huh? Um, I'm such a, I'm an awesome husband. Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm a little farther along than she is. And really what this book is about is about the Great African War that took place uh, in the 1990s and actually still kind of continues on in some way, shape, and form even to, into the present. And as I'm reading, there's, there's so many complex contributing factors that go into this war, and that was one of the reasons why uh, we didn't hear a whole lot about it here in the States. But there was a trigger event. And that was the genocide that took place in Rwanda. Because what happened is that so many people left Rwanda and the, many of the refugee camps ended up being in the Congo. And so one of the things that happened is that many of the, the soldiers who had left after the genocide were in the Congo. The very people who had committed the genocide were running some of the camps in the Congo. And so this was the trigger event in that all of these hostilities began to overflow and other nations began to invade the Congo in sense to get justice. Trigger events. Often there's complex circumstances, but there's one thing. Think for a minute before, before World War I. All of the, the treaties and alliances and, and the plot was sort of bubbling over in Europe. And then there was the trigger event. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. World War I erupted. What we have here is a trigger event and everything that flows out of it, and it's tragic in many ways. The big idea this morning, however, is that through the gospel, Jesus does make us a distinct and a gracious people. But there's a whole lot of sin here, and there's no good guy. That was one of the problems with the Rwandan, you know, the, the Great War, African War, is that there was no real good guy and there was no distinctive bad guy. Same thing sort of here. Let's start with the idea that our disobedience places others at risk. We see this primarily in verses 1 through 7, but it flows through the rest of the text. It, it is basically set up by the fact that Jacob, though he had promised when he left the land to return to Bethel and to build an altar and to worship there, never did it. Now, he built an altar outside of Shechem. We talked about that last week. But he never went all the way to Bethel where, where he was supposed to. And so his failure to go the extra 20 miles, that's all it was, 20 miles, 
a couple of days. His failure to go that extra 20 miles to Bethel and to keep his vow ends up, unknown to him, putting his whole family at risk due to the Shechemites, who are part of the Hivites, some of all of those ites that we heard about from Deuteronomy 7. Okay? But then another thing happens here. It says that Dinah goes and enter, it goes to the city to see some of the women of the city. She leaves essentially the family compound that is outside of the city and it, apparently without a chaperone or at least without a male chaperone. Now this was an unco- this was not, not something you were supposed to do. Uh, for instance, you might think, well wait a minute Steve, uh, didn't Jacob meet Rachel at the well? Well, she was on the family property. That was the family well. That was, it was proper for her to be in that place. But now Dinah is going outside of a safe place and into a dangerous place. And she is going there apparently without proper supervision. All of her brothers are in the fields with the flocks and the herds. She apparently does not take one of the male servants who are there. She goes and places herself at risk. This week, read about Josh Hamilton. Some of you don't know who he is. That's okay. He's a baseball player, Texas Rangers. Almost ruined his life when he was a member of the Rays organization because of alcohol and drugs. He's clean. He's been playing. He's an all-star on the verge of signing a multi-year, big, big, big kind of contract, put himself in a place of risk. Ended up doing one of the things that he said he's not supposed to do. He said he was angry with his wife, apparently, was at a bar, well, actually at a restaurant, but decided to have a few beers with his dinner. Went to a place he shouldn't have been and found himself doing something he shouldn't have done. Now, the guilt here is not on Dinah. Don't misunderstand me. It's on Shechem. 100% on Shechem. But Dinah did place herself in a precarious position because Shechem, the prince of the land, he sees her and his actions in the language that Moses uses here should bring us back mentally to Genesis chapter 6. Because there it was the princes of the land, the powerful, who were seeing the, the beautiful women and were taking them to themselves. And that is exactly what Shechem does here. And at first, his advances, his desire is not wanted. Because we see this, four things happen. He saw her. He seized her. Okay, that's not a gentle thing. That's not wooing. That's not asking out for a date. Okay, uh, this is ugly. He lay with her, and he humiliated or disgraced her. What we see taking place in this very brief sentence is a brutal sexual assault that takes place. Canaan has essentially been becoming more and more corrupt over time. It is more corrupt in its actions than it was in the day of Abraham. Remember how, how God had warned some of the people against touching Abraham. Well, it seems as though God is no longer warning or they're no longer listening, and God's people are now in a precarious place within the land of Canaan. They are in danger there, and it threatens the family of the promise. 
Something happens, though, in the midst of the encounter. We're not sure exactly what happened, but now suddenly Shechem has changed his tune. He begins to speak lovingly and tenderly to her, and he wants her to be his bride, his wife. But even as he does this, there's sort of the implication that he's basically holding her hostage. The language here is is like Jacob finds out this happened. It's not like he sees his daughter and goes, what happened to you? Maybe someone says, she didn't come home. There's something wrong. We don't know exactly all the specifics of how this played out, but she, she is not at the negotiation. And at the end, the brothers take her from Shechem's house. So it's quite possible that she has been there this whole time as a hostage. But Shechem's unrestrained desire puts, he doesn't realize this, but it puts the whole city at risk, even though he doesn't know it. Think again of what I already mentioned, Josh Hamilton. He not only put himself at risk, but he put his family at risk. Part of his press conference addressed the idea that now there's a family situation that we don't really need to know about. But there's a situation that didn't exist that now exists. His crossing a line has created problems for his family and has put them at risk. And that is what Shechem has done. He's crossed a line and he's put his family at risk, his whole city at risk, so that he can have a few moments of physical pleasure. Think about this for a moment. This is part of why it says in Numbers 33 what it says. If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, okay, he's talking about the conquest that's going to take place after the Exodus. If you don't obey me and get rid of all of these people, God says, then those of them whom you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall be trouble that shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. Partial obedience is disobedience, and it invites more trouble upon us. We don't realize it at the time. We think of the inconvenience of full obedience. We don't think about the possible consequences of what might take place. Jacob never thought about what might have happened if he didn't go on to Bethel, and yet it happened. Israel was warned that any of the inhabitants not driven out would cause them trouble. And in fact, when you go through Judges, what's happening is that you know all these different people oppress God's people because they were not removed by Joshua and the people of the conquest. They're still there, they rise to power, and they begin to oppress various tribes of Israel. They brought the trouble on themselves through their disobedience. Unrestrained sexual desire places not just Shechem in danger, but it places the church in danger. It brings disgrace to God's people. It creates all sorts of problems. We read about that, we heard about that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because as it, as it mentions, you will deal dishonorably toward your brother. The woman 
is a part of a family and you dishonor not just her, but also her family in the process when you are not able to restrain your own desire. And it's not just uh, that kind of desire that uh, that can destroy churches and, and bring the name of Christ dishonor, but unrestrained anger, as we're going to see as well, also places the church in danger. There's a this is a really stupid commercial out right now, and it kind of goes like this. When your cable is on the fritz, you get frustrated. And, and really, the man's frustration was kind of mellow. He just went, yes. Your daughter will imitate you. Your daughter will imitate you and be cast out of school. Your daughter, who has been cast out of school, will meet up with undesirables. Your daughter who knows these undesirables will tie the knot with an undesirable. Your daughter who has tied the knot with an undesirable will have a son with a dog collar. If you don't want a, dog, a grandson with a dog collar, you know, switch to satellite TV. Okay? But, it's, but there's a chain of events that sort of goes on here. You know, we don't realize the, the future effect of our choices and our decisions. I'm not suggesting that anyone here is going to have a grandson with a dog collar, okay? I'm not even telling you to get DirecTV because I'm not going to tell you that, okay? But there's there's an unseeable chain of events that our actions begin to roll into action, into, wow, my brain is just not getting that thought. We, We begin this process. We don't, we don't recognize what's going to happen, but yet we kind of knock over the first domino with our disobedience. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay? But what happens, the big picture of that is they have lost sight of grace. Jacob lost sight of grace. Losing sight of grace allows our sin to put others at risk. Second part of this is that Jesus calls us to avoid assimilation. What we have, you know, after the event, we, we have a plea essentially for assimilation. Hamar and his son approach Jacob and his sons with an offer that they have to refuse. What's interesting about this discussion is that there is essentially no apology that prefaces the request for marriage. He does not say, you know, I did the wrong thing. He sort of alludes to that where he says, may I find grace in your eyes? I'll pay you whatever it is you want me to pay. Okay? He appeals to them on the basis of what appeals to him. And I'll explain that in a moment. But we think, we see here that he's offering as full of a bride price as they want. And that's in keeping with what would happen in Israel later. That if someone, as it says in, uh, Exodus 22, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And part of what is going on here is a different culture than ours, and that culture says that a a daughter is worth something to a family. And when she's going to be married, the family gets the bride price. They are compensated for the fact that she is no longer going to be a part of their family and contribute to the life of their family. And what happens is that if someone has been assaulted like that, damaged goods, no more bride price. The family loses. 
the woman loses. And so there's supposed to be a compensation that takes place. And so Shechem is willing to make this compensation. He goes beyond that with he and his father. He says, make marriages with us. He's appealing to their own lust, in a sense. Take our women, he says. Surely the sons of Israel needed daughters, but they did not need Canaanite daughters. That was one of the reasons that Jacob was sent out of the land. Not only did his brother want to kill him, but no Canaanite women for wives. That was part of it. And so they're, they're making this offer that, they, that um, Jacob and his sons should have refused. We're going to see that Israel was prohibited from intermarriage as well. We read that already. And the reason was not, oh, they're from a different race. It, the reason was, oh, they worship different gods. Okay? It is not about the color of skin. It is not about the socioeconomic status. It's not about what they did for a living. It's not about they have a different sounding last name. It's the fact that they worshiped a different god. That was what it was. And that's why the instructions were not only don't marry the one, tear down those idols, tear down their pillars, tear down all the things they use for their worship, because we do, God did not want his people to become prey to worshiping false gods. And one way that happens is to marry someone who worships a false god. Look at Solomon. What happened? Wisest man in the world. took too many foreign wives, began to worship their gods, began to build temples for their gods in Jerusalem, the city where God chose to put his name to live. Christians, we also face this very same temptation. I know, I was there, not physically, but you know what I mean. I lived it. I was getting old, man. Okay? But I never, there's, there's a, such a, a desire to get married can be so strong in some of us. And I did have that strongness of desire to get married, but I did ever kind of thought I should marry this person who's not a Christian. But I had lots of friends who did. And I've counseled with lots of wives who did and regret it. There's a reason why God instructs us to do this. Trust him with that. So make marriages with us. Not only that, but they say dwell with us. They're offering community. They're offering a blending of the cultures. They say, let us become one people. That Israel would lose its distinctiveness as the people of God was the temptation that was presented there. One of the phrases that they use here, the land will be open before you. And that's exactly what we see before Lot went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. The land was open before him, and he chose the place that looked prosperous, Sodom and Gomorrah. How'd that end for Lot? Not so good. Okay. So, we're getting all of these warn red flags. Moses bring up all these red flags so, so that people remember, oh yeah, uh-huh. This is not gonna go well at all. And then get property in it. There's a temptation for them to to get this property not from God, 
in his timing, in his providence, but instead to take it for themselves through intermarrying with the Canaanites. Now the Shechemites, it must be said, were deceitful in their offer. What they wanted to do, which is seen by the discussion at the city gate, is all their stuff will become our stuff. That's how they sell it to all these men, that they might get circumcised too. Okay, We will gobble them up. I can't help but think of the Borg. For those of you who watch Star Trek Next Generation, there's the thing called the Borg, which represents communism, actually. And... Uh, <laughs> But what it does is everyone gets assimilated to the Borg. You lose all of your distinctiveness. You lose your ability, your capacity to think for yourself. You become conformed to the Borg. You all dress the same. You all act the same. In fact, there's one will. The will is completely surrendered to the Borg. That's what's happening here. They're being invited into the Borg. Become like us. We'll be one people. Okay, and the, and the Borg is aggressive in trying to assimilate other peoples, just as the Borg in the show was trying, would, would try to assimilate whole planets at a time. Resistance, so they thought, was futile. But the sons of Jacob were also deceitful. Not just the Shechemites, but the, but the sons of Jacob were deceitful because they offered the, the, the covenant sign without conversion. Pedro Baptist. Proud of it. But there's a degree to which every Pedro Baptist is a Credo Baptist. Because when someone converts to Jesus Christ from another faith, what do we do? We baptize them and their children, if they have any. Okay? These people were, were supposed to be called out of their worship of the gods of Canaan and into the worship of the true God, Jehovah, and they were, then they were to be circumcised. This would have been a missionary circumcision, if you want to use that term. But they're just told to circumcise, not to leave their false gods and to embrace the true God. And so the, the boys are treating the covenant sign like a sham. They're trampling on it, John Calvin says, in their lust for revenge. Israel, when it entered the land, was not to be like the sons of Jacob, but they were to be a distinct, peculiar people whose conduct reflected the character of God. We see that in the passages we read already this morning. Well, the church as well is supposed to be distinct. We are supposed to be peculiar in a good way. We're meant to be people who reflect the character of God. The Colossians talks about how, on the one hand, He renews us in His image, His righteous image. And so there's, an, there's that aspect of sanctification that takes place. God is at work in us to transform and to change us, and yet there's also the flip side of that in, in terms of our responsibility in this process. Romans 12, for instance. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We start off, most of us, as being conformed to the world. We do the will of the world in the sense of we share the same moral values of the world. Paul's audience in in Rome, that's what they were. They thought like any other person in Rome thought. And their idea of right and wrong was completely dependent upon the culture that they found themselves in. And what he's saying is, your idea of what is right and what is wrong must change so that it reflects God's view of what is right and wrong and not your culture's view of what is right and wrong. Whatever that culture might be. 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, The problem is not just out there. Peter says, but it's your also your passions of your former ignorance. There's, the sin is in here. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How does this take place? Well, part of it is given there, right there by, by Paul in, in Romans. Part of it is the renewing of the mind, the, the comparing of our, of our values, our sense of right and, right and wrong with what God says in His Scriptures as we read the Scriptures beginning to end. And asking that question, am I believing that what God says is wrong is wrong? Or am I going with what the people around me say is right and wrong? That's part of it. Part of it is prayer that God would show you the errors of your heart. That's part of how this process begins to take place in us. Now, when the Borg was coming, there was one guy who said, it stops here. Good old Jean-Luc Picard. Okay? You're not alone in the fight. It's not you against the world. Okay? Jesus says, it stops here. Jesus is the one who has conquered sin and death upon the cross. Jesus is the one who by the power of his Holy Spirit is showing you where you need to change. Jesus is the one who by the power of the Holy Spirit is giving you, is teaching you, as it says in, in Titus, to say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. So you're not in this alone. There is Jesus who stands by his people. And so when losing sight of grace means that we begin to assimilate to the corrupt culture around us, regaining the sight of grace means that we are being more and more conformed to the image of God. Third part is that only the gospel spares us from excessive responses. Think of the people who are in this story, this event, because it's true. It's not like a fictional story. Dinah. Let's start with Dinah, the victim. She is disgraced. She's damaged goods. She has little to no hope for marriage. P. 
people who have been in her shoes feel much of that as well. There is a great weight upon their souls. They feel broken. They feel worthless. They can feel like they, they can't trust people. That there's something wrong with them, not realizing that the real problem was someone else. They personalize what has happened to them as if they deserved it somehow. That's what, often what happens to someone like Dinah. Think of her counterpart in 2 Samuel 13, one of the son, uh, one of the daughters of, of David, who one of her half-brothers is trying to take advantage of her, and she answered him, Oh no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not to be done in Israel. That's just exactly what the sons of Jacob said here in Genesis. Do not do this outrageous thing or foolish thing. As for me, here's the, where could I carry my shame? She doesn't know of any place she can go with her shame. And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. There is a place she can go with her shame. And that is to Jesus and the cross. Because Jesus was disgraced for us. He was humiliated. He was laughed at. He was spat upon. He was stripped naked and nailed to wood. He did this to remove our personal defilement. And He meets us at the foot of the cross to heal the hearts that have been damaged by the sins of others. And so the gospel is the only hope ultimately that they have that they can stop overreacting to what has been done against them. That they can find wholeness and they can find peace instead of the paranoia or the perpetual victimhood. But Dinah's not the only person in this event. There's also Jacob. Think of his excessive response in a sense. He held his peace. Jacob was afraid of creating a stink. And when his sons made the stink, he was mad at them for making the stink. Okay? Jacob does not confront the sin and he does not offer the grace. He just wants it all to go away. Isn't that a common reaction on our part? Just go away. I don't want to deal with the reality of this. And, and, and Jacob is sort of in denial. He almost wants to put his fingers in, the, in his ears. He is passive. He does not come to his daughter's aid, and I can't even understand that. Part of me is like Simeon and Levi wanting to say, Dad, what's your deal? Let's do something about this. It's our sister. But he was afraid of men. He doesn't lead his family. At the end, when it talks about his response to his sons, you have brought a no, a oh, sorry. You have brought trouble on me by making me. Stink, in the, uh, stink to the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. For if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I will be destroyed, both I and my household. It's like the household is a second thought here. He's all about me. He's lost sight of grace. 
He's lost sight of the God who has saved him from Laban, who saved him from Esau, and could save him from the Canaanites. He lost sight of it. And he's living in fear. And so he does nothing. Not only that, but, he, but think of that, that statement there of Shechem, if I may find favor in your eyes. Has anyone said that recently in Genesis? Jacob, three times to his brother. Jacob knew something about needing favor or grace from someone's eyes, and he also should remember that he did not find it from his brother until first he begged for it from God and got it. And so he should be able to, to instead of reacting with this passivity and this pretending, to be able to go to Shechem, I know what it's like to destroy lives. This is his hand on his shoulder, by the way. I'm not, I'm not being weird. I know, look him in the eye, look him in the eye. I know what it's like to need forgiveness. For I did my brother wrong. And there is a way to receive it by faith in the God of my fathers. He could have done that. But he lost sight of grace. He's not the only one. There's his sons. It starts off with them being indignant. They were filled with rage at the crime, and that rage begins to blind them. And so they took advantage of these men, particularly Simeon and Levi. And for that, we'll get to their punishment later (laughs) in another week. They lost when it came to the blessing. There are consequences for their actions. Jacob and God remembered their excessive response and picking up the sword. They killed, they plundered. They, those two killed and all of them plundered. Perhaps even Joseph. They take up the sword. The sham circumcision is followed by the utter destruction of the men of Shechem. This was genocide. This was not holy war. There's a moral ambiguity, so to speak, that you're you're meant to to be left with, in a sense, because God had, had not authorized this destruction. He had told Abraham back in Genesis 15, and they about... First, your, your people are going to go into Egypt. They're going to be imprisoned there and enslaved there for 400 years. Then they're going to come back. And when they come back in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The conquest was tied to the fullness of the iniquity of the Canaanites. It was the judgment of God, authorized by God and God alone. It's not something that's repeated. It's not something that that we can kind of pick up and decide, ah, let's kill them. It's the judgment of God. That's not what we do. That's not what these men should have done here. But did you catch from Thessalonians, He, Jesus, will avenge. That's the hope they had to put, that's what they should have put their hope on. God will take care 
of this. Jesus promises to avenge not just in Thessalonians, but in Romans. I will avenge. I will repay. He promises to repay those who harm His people. But we on the other side, we're the ones who are offering forgiveness. Just as Jacob should have done. We have to recognize that ultimately there will be no injustice done. Jesus will either bring His vengeance upon them or He will suffer that vengeance Himself or has suffered it Himself upon the cross should they repent and believe the promises of the Gospel. One last thing. Corey ten Boom. Living example of this. Her whole family was tossed into the Nazi concentration camps. She watched as everyone in her family died. Well, she didn't watch her father because they were split off. But she watched as her sister, who from her perspective was far more godly than she was, her sister dies in the concentration camp before they get out. She's finally freed at the end of the war. And she takes some of the experiences that from that time in the concentration camp and she spe- writes on it and speaks on it and all of these things. And she is at an, an event and she looks up and she sees a guard. Not just a random guard, but one of the men who used to torment her and her sister. What's he doing? He had found forgiveness from Christ. He had become a Christian. But what's she going to do? And she realized that if Christ has forgiven him, I can too, I must too, and embraced him. Laying down the debt that that he owed her, freeing him from that, only because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She didn't lose sight of grace. So it's easy for us to lose sight of grace. We, we live among people who are blind to it. You know, our flesh conspires with the world and the devil to lose sight of it. And, and that, when we do lose sight of it, it can be a trigger for an avalanche of sin as we become like those who are around us. But Jesus is greater. His Spirit is in us to redirect our gaze so that we don't lose sight of the grace. He uses the Scriptures so that we might seek that grace, that we might offer that grace to communities that are suffering from sin and from misery. And so the question is, where are your eyes looking? On the sin or the grace? Let's pray. Father, this story is blunt, it is frightening, it is ugly, and yet we see this is who we are apart from seeking Your grace. That we'll respond just like these people. That we need someone outside of ourselves to come and rescue us from that mess and that only someone is Jesus. He is the only one that can forgive us, that can heal us when we've been sinned against, 
that He is able to do all of those things, that He is sufficient for us no matter which end of the ledger we're on. And we thank You for such a great Savior who's fully capable of meeting our needs. Help us to trust Him and entrust ourselves to Him with all of the things that maybe we're carrying right now. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Amen.